Sweating It Out with Dover by Joyce Porter Every English summer, no matter how awful the weather is in general, is blessed with one gloriously hot, really sweltering day, and in drought years we sometimes have two. The savage murder of young Elvin Garlic took place on one of these exceptional days when the sky was blue and the sun blazed down. So too did Detective Chief Inspector Wilfred Dover's investigation. Indeed, his conduct of the case and the highly unseasonable weather were not unconnected. It was getting on for midday when Detective Chief Inspector Dover, chaperoned as always by McGregor, his young and handsome sergeant, arrived at Skinner's farm. The temperature was already pushing up into the eighties, and most people would have been delighted at getting out into the country on such a marvellous day. Chief Inspector Dover, however, wasn't most people, and in spite of appearances, Skinner's farm was only twenty-five miles from Charing Cross, and so not really country anyhow. Charitable people might have thought it was the heat which had addled Dover's brains, but in reality, he was just as slow-witted on even the most temperate day. On this occasion, he didn't seem able to get it into his head that Skinner's farm wasn't actually a farm, but an over-restored Georgian house standing in its own grounds and separated from the hurly-burly of the outside world by a couple of fields full of genuinely ruminating black-and-white cows. I suppose they call it a farm, sir, said MacGregor, surreptitiously dabbing at the back of his neck with a slightly starched white handkerchief, because it was once the farmhouse. Bloody fools, said Dover, the sweat standing out in beads on his forehead. As a concession to the weather, he had left off his overcoat, but the greasy bowler hat, the blue serge suit, and the down-at-heel boots were the same as ever. Struth, panted Dover, but it's hot. Perhaps we should have the window down a bit, sir, said MacGregor, who'd been wondering for some time if the peculiar smell in the police car was Dover, or merely something agricultural they were spraying on the fields. I hope they've shifted that blooming body, said Dover, querulously, as he plucked at his shirt. He'll be ponging to high heaven else. MacGregor glanced at his watch. They may not have moved it yet, sir, he warned. It's only about an hour and a half since they found him, and since I understand he's lying in some sort of copse and reasonably sheltered from the sun. You won't get me going to see it, declared Dover flatly. I bet it's all crawling with flies. Here, he roused himself as the car turned into a driveway. We there? The married couple who lived at Skinner's farm were understandably in a state of some distress and they greeted the arrival of the two high-powered detectives from Scotland Yard as though it was a heaven-sent solution to all the horrors of that terrible morning. Anxiously hospitable, they conducted a profusely sweating Dover through the house and out onto the comparatively cool and shady veranda. Here they installed him on a cane chaise long, plied him with cigarettes, and asked him what he would like in the way of a long, cool drink. Dover, having graciously accepted pretty little Mrs. Hewson's suggestion of an iced lager, 
hoisted his boots up onto the footrest and flopped back. Struth, this was a life, and it was going to take more than a bloody murder case to dislodge him from it. When, a few minutes later, Mr. Hewson came out with the drinks, Dover was more or less obliged to open his eyes. Having half a pint of ice-cold liquid sloshing around in his stomach had quite a bracing effect on him, however, and for a few minutes he was actually sitting up and taking some interest in his surroundings. The veranda, he discovered, overlooked a large and well-kept garden which fell gently away from the house. In the distance was what appeared to be a clump of trees where several figures in dark blue could dimly be seen moving about. Dover had no wish to strain his eyesight by peering through the heat haze, so he treated himself to a good look at his host instead. Mr. Hewson, he ascertained without much interest, was a man of about fifty, but very fit and useful looking. He was wearing a pair of powder blue shorts and matching T-shirt, but his manner was far from being carefree and relaxed. As he explained with an uneasy laugh, he wasn't accustomed to stumbling over dead bodies in the middle of a Saturday morning. Dover relieved his own inattentions with a good belch and wiped the back of his hand across his mouth. You found him, did you? No, not exactly, said Mr. Hewson. Tansy here, he indicated his wife, who was happily engaged in refilling Dover's glass, actually found him, but naturally I went down to have a look before I phoned the police. I hoped, concluded Mr. Hewson, with a bleak little smile, that she'd got it wrong. Still hanging around, are they? asked Dover, through a yawn which gave everybody a fine view of his dentures. The local police, yes, the inspector's using the phone in the sitting room, and the rest of them are still down there in the old orchard. Mr. Hewson pointed toward the clump of trees which Dover had already more or less noticed. They're searching through the undergrowth. Ah, uh, do you want me to tell them that you're here? The last thing Dover wanted was a mob of local flatfoots swarming all over him in that heat. He leered encouragingly at pretty little Mrs. Hewson. So what happened, Mrs.? he asked and rattled his now empty glass. Pretty little Mrs. Hewson grew tearful. She told her story four times already and really didn't want to go through it all again. Dover had little sympathy for a woman who seemed incapable of recognising an empty glass when she saw one. Oh, get on with it, he advised impatiently. Mrs. Hewson gulped, dried her eyes on a wisp of handkerchief, clutched her husband's hand and complied. It's all my fault, actually. If I hadn't decided to grab up the old orchard and turn it into a vegetable garden, none of this would ever have happened. Freddy wasn't a bit keen on the idea, were you, darling? He said he'd do it himself in time, but, well, I know how busy he is, so I got hold of this young man from the village to come and do it. What young man? demanded Dover, sportingly moving his empty glass even nearer so as to give Mrs. Hewson every chance. The young man who's been murdered, Elvin Garlic. He works for a firm of landscape gardeners, so, of course, he's able to borrow their equipment. You mean he was doing the job for you in his own time? McGregor, sipping straight lemonade because he didn't drink when he was on duty, was taking notes. Well, somebody in that partnership had to behave responsibly, didn't they? Oh, yes, said Mrs. Hewson with some pride. And for cash, that way you get it cheaper because nobody has to pay income tax or VAT or anything. The only trouble was, she added, with a disconsolate little moue, he could only come on weekends, and that meant I couldn't keep it a secret from Freddy. I'd wanted to present him with a fait accompli, you see. 
Ah, grunted Dover just to show he was still awake. Well, Elvin arrived about half past eight this morning. Mrs. Houston raised her pretty little chin defensively. He told me to call him Elvin. He said everybody always did, especially when he was obliging them. Well, I told him exactly what I wanted doing and left him to get on with it. And where were you all this time, sir? McGregor turned to Mr. Hewson. I was still getting up. Saturday's my day off too, you know. Freddy Hewson felt that further explanation was required. I'm a stockbroker, so of course I'm in the city all week. So you didn't see Mr. Garlick? No. I knew somebody'd come to the house, of course, and then later you could hear his rotivator or whatever churning away down there in the orchard. That's when this naughty little girl here, Mr. Hewson squeezed his wife's hand affectionately, finally had to tell me what she was up to. He was ever so surprised, simpered little Mrs. Hewson happily. And then what, sir? Well, then nothing, Sergeant. Tansy and I had breakfast out here on the veranda. Uh, Garlic was all right then because we could hear him, uh, couldn't we, darling? Uh, after breakfast, I went round to the back of the house to work on my car. I'm rebuilding a 1934 Alvis, and there were a few things I wanted to get done before it got too hot. And you, Mrs. Houston? I was in the kitchen, uh, getting as much as I could ready for dinner tonight. Well, you don't want to spend a glorious day like this slaving over a hot stove, do you? The kitchen's on the far side of the house, too, Sergeant, explained Mr. Hewson, so neither of us could see anything going on in the old orchard, and as I told the other policemen, we didn't hear anything either. We were both pretty absorbed in what we were doing, and of course, Garlic was a good way off, and he wasn't using his machinery the whole time. Well, at about eleven, um, I suppose it would be, Tansy brought me out a cup of coffee to the garage. She said she was going to take some down to Garlic, too. I would have gone myself, of course, but I'd just started stripping down the clutch, and it was all a bit fraught, and I didn't want to leave it. Oh, I didn't mind, lovey, cooed Mrs. Houston. Like I said, I was glad to get out of the kitchen for a few minutes and stretch my legs. McGregor nodded. So you walked down to the old orchard with the coffee, Mrs. Houston. That's right. Well, uh, when I got there, I, I couldn't see or hear Elvin anywhere, so I shouted his name. I, I wasn't keen to go tramping about down there because it's waist high in weeds and nettles and things. Mrs. Houston stretched out her shapely bare legs for the general delectation and to emphasise the point she was making. McGregor did indeed begin to sweat a bit more freely, but it was many moons since any part of the female anatomy had sent the blood racing through Dover's veins. He merely pushed his bowler hat a bit further back on his head and inquired if anybody'd got a cigarette to spare. The murder investigation ground to a halt as the Hewsons obligingly rushed off in all directions to fetch cigarettes, matches and ashtrays. They finally redeemed themselves by refilling Dover's glass, and it was only when they'd got Dover happily swilling and sucking away that Mrs. Hewson was able to finish her story. The end proved something of an anticlimax. Having received no answer to her shouts, Mrs. Hewson had gingerly ventured further into the old orchard and found Garlic just lying there, face down, with his own pitchfork sticking out of his back. Pretty little Mrs. Hewson wasn't sure whether she'd screamed, but she was certain she hadn't touched the body. I didn't have to, she exclaimed unhappily. 
I just knew he was dead. I dropped everything and came running back up here to tell Freddy. Mr. Hewson took up the tale. I went tearing down to the old orchard, he said, and there he was. I couldn't see any sign of breathing. Garlic was stripped to the waist, by the way, and with that pitchfork pinning him to the ground. Well, I knew it couldn't be an accident or anything. I left everything just as it was and came back up here and phoned the police. And we had a patrol car here in less than five minutes. A man, who had been waiting just inside the sitting room for a suitably dramatic moment, stepped forward. There was an unmistakable drop of the jaw when he got his first clear look at Dover, but he recovered well and introduced himself. Detective Inspector Threlfall, sir. I arrived at 11.26 in response to an urgent summons from the patrol car, and I've been in charge of the preliminary investigation since my arrival. Detective Inspector Threlfall paused in case the seventeen and a quarter stone of solid flesh stretched out on the chaise long wished to make some response. It didn't. With the mercury climbing that high in the thermometers, Dover had no energy to spare for social niceties. Inspector Threlfall cleared his throat and tried again. You'll want to see the body, sir. That stung Dover into life. Oh, I bloody shan't, he growled. The mere thought of venturing out into that hot, bright world outside, making him feel quite sick. The doctor thought that Garlic had been knocked unconscious with a blow across the back of the head, sir. Inspector Threlfall would never have believed that Dover didn't give a fig either way. Then he was run through with a pitchfork while he was still out. Crude, but effective. McGregor took pity on the inspector. Are there any signs as to which way the murderer came, sir? Inspector Threlfall shook his head. Not so far, Sergeant. Mind you, Buff had been churning things up for a couple of hours before he bought it, so it's a tricky job trying to sort things out. Mind you, the murderer could have come from almost any direction, crept down this way, past the house, or come across those fields, or... Inspector Threlfall waved his arms about in the appropriate directions. Got into the orchard from the other side. You can't see it from here, but there's a road running along there, not fifty yards from where Buff was killed. Dover's chair creaked pathetically as he tried to find a more comfortable position. Buff? queried McGregor with a frown. Inspector Threlfall shrugged. That was his nickname. I've known him since he was old enough to appear before a juvenile court, you know, and he's been a regular customer ever since. We're going to miss him. He'd had a go at pretty well everything, pinching old ladies' pension books, drunk and disorderly, breaking and entering, nicking cars, shoplifting. Good heavens! gasped Mrs. Hewson faintly. Inspector Threlfall glanced at her with just a touch of contempt. That's how he got his job with Withenshaw's, madam. His probation officer swung it for him. Well, they tried everything else. Seems they thought a spell of honest toil might sort him out. I don't know what old Withenshaw's going to say when he finds out Buff's been borrowing all that expensive gear. But he told me his boss was only too willing to lend him the stuff protested Mrs. Hewson, carefully avoiding her husband's eye. Well, he would, wouldn't he, madam? asked Inspector Threlfall easily. Oh, was that a very smooth tongue, young buff, especially where the ladies were concerned. He turned back to McGregor. That's where I'd start looking if I was you, Sergeant. Buff's got more girls into trouble than you and I have had hot dinners. There must be hundreds of fathers and husbands and boyfriends thirsting for his blood. And that's not counting any members of the fair sex who might have had it in for him. 
It hardly sounds like a woman's crime, said MacGregor doubtfully. He was dying to get down to the old orchard and see things for himself. I don't see why not. You don't need much strength to knock somebody out with a chunk of wood or something, and that pitchfork had prongs as sharp as a razor. It would go through him like a hot knife through butter. Oh dear, moaned Mrs. Houston, clamping both hands across her mouth and going as white as a sheet. Her husband leapt across, and wrapping his arms protectively round her, helped her to her feet. He smiled apologetically at the three stolidly staring policemen. She's a bit upset, I'm afraid. I'll get her to have a little lie down. You don't want us any more just now, do you? I think we've told you all we know. Nobody seemed much concerned one way or the other, though Dover did bestir himself to remark that if Mr. Houston was thinking of making his wife some tea, he, Dover, wouldn't say no to a cup. These cold drinks are all right, said Dover confidingly to an astonished Inspector Threlfall, but there's nothing to touch a good hot cup of tea, especially in this bloody weather. It brings you out in a good muck sweat. Oh, quite, said Inspector Threlfall. Uh, I was wondering what your plans were, sir. Plans? Dover squinted suspiciously. I thought you might like to pop down to the village, sir, and have a word with the lad's mother. He lived with her, and she might just know something. I've got some chaps out making general inquiries around the neighbourhood, but I thought I'd best leave Mrs. Gallic for you. There was an awkward pause. Not that Dover was hesitating. Wild horses weren't going to shift him off that veranda until the temperature outside dropped by at least twenty degrees. But there was the problem of conveying this message to Inspector What's-His-Name, without too much loss of face. How many people knew he was going to be working here this morning? asked Dover in an attempt to give himself time to think. Inspector Threlfall rubbed his chin. Not many, I shouldn't think. Not if he was borrowing the gear without permission. Besides, it's not the sort of thing you'd expect young Buff to be doing in his spare time. Normally, if he wanted extra money, he'd just nick it. MacGregor wiped the perspiration off his upper lip. The veranda was only comparatively cool. Maybe he's turned over a new leaf. More likely casing the joint, said Inspector Threlfall. The Hewsons must have been mad to let him come within a mile of this place. MacGregor fanned himself gently with his notebook. It was more Mrs. Hewson, wasn't it? I don't think her husband knew anything about it till Garlic turned up this morning. Seems he wanted the old orchard left just as it was, said Inspector Threlfall. Claims it's a nature reserve or something. I expect he'll pin her ears back for her when all this is over. Most untypically at this stage in the proceedings, Dover was wide awake and listening intently. It wasn't, however, the lethargic conversation about the Houston's private life that was claiming his anxious attention, but the more interesting rumbles that were coming from his stomach. MacGregor laughed a cool, sophisticated, man-of-the-world laugh. Houston'll just have to teach her who's boss, otherwise he won't be able to call his soul his own. Ark, who's talking, jeered Dover, from whom it was never too hot and sticky to be unpleasant. He left his guts to take care of themselves for a moment. You could write all you know about married life on a threepenny bit, laddie, and still have room for the Lord's Prayer. Any moron can see that she's got him by the short and curlies. What do you expect when a man goes and marries a flighty young thing half his age? I don't think he's quite as... Near as damn it, snarled Dover, who didn't care to be contradicted, especially when he wasn't feeling too frisky in the first place. He's no fool like an old fool. 
Speaking of marriage, said Inspector Threlfall, but nobody was listening to him. Dover had tuned in to those ominous visceral splutterings again. McGregor was frantically trying to work out if Dover had spotted something he'd missed. Do you think it might be a case of jealousy, sir? McGregor asked, eyeing Dover doubtfully. Dover blinked. Eh? McGregor grew even more worried. The, the elderly husband, sir, and the attractive young wife, plus the sexy young man from the village, do you think there could have been anything between Mrs. Hewson and Garlic? McGregor appealed to Inspector Threlfall. You did say Garlic was attractive to women, didn't you, sir? Like a honeypot to flies, agreed Inspector Threlfall. Or maybe McGregor was more interested in his own brilliant deductions. It was Mrs. Hewson. She takes the coffee down to the old orchard, say, and Garlic makes improper advances towards her. She repulses him, he persists. She picks up the nearest fallen branch, or what have you, and... Bunkum! Bunkum! said Dover, coming out in a hot flush at the mere thought of such an expenditure of energy in that heat. She'd not have the strength, she's only knee-high to a grasshopper. Garlic wasn't all that big a chap, sir, said Inspector Threlfall, as he remembered that these two Scotland Yard experts hadn't yet even seen the body. A woman might have done it, but what I wanted to mention, sir, was about the Hewsons. Well, why don't you spit it out, then? I haven't got all bloody day to sit around waiting for you to come to the point. The training that Inspector Threlfall had received at the police school all those years ago stood him in good stead now. Otherwise, Skinner's farm might have witnessed another and even bloodier murder. They're not actually husband and wife, sir, not legally, that is. Dover shrugged his ample shoulders and folded his hands over his ample paunch. So what? It's that skin of mine house. He closed his eyes against the glare coming in from the garden, only to snap them open again as the desire to score off a brother police officer proved stronger than the longing for a quiet forty winks. She wears a wedding ring, he pointed out, much to McGregor's amazement, because one didn't really expect Dover to notice such things, and she calls herself Mrs. That's as maybe, sir, said Inspector Threlfall, nobly swallowing the rejoinder he would have liked to have made. But they're definitely not married, well, not to each other. Hewson's already got a wife, or as far as anybody knows he has. But what the hell's that supposed to mean? It's just that I happened to be involved when she did a bunk, sir, the first Mrs. Hewson, that is. I was on duty when Hewson came in to report that she was missing. Must be six years ago now. He wanted us to find her, but he didn't. There's nothing we can do about a runaway wife, sir, you know that. I carried out a routine investigation, but there was nothing suspicious about her disappearance. All I could do was suggest to Mr. Hewson that he try the Salvation Army, not that it was her sort of thing, really. Working on the principle that talk, talk on the veranda was a damned sight better than walk-walk across that dirty great garden. Dover demanded more details about the first Mrs. Hewson and her mysterious disappearance. Inspector Threlfall was obliged to search his memory. As far as he was concerned, the whole incident had been totally unremarkable. It was true that the first Mrs. Hewson had cleared out without a word and nobody had heard from her since, but this could be attributed to pure spite. Spite? queried Dover, almost as though he was interested. It makes it difficult for Hewson to divorce her, sir. As things stand now, he's got to wait all of seven years and then apply to the courts for permission to presume that she's dead. Meantime, his hands are tied. You can't serve divorce papers on a woman you can't find. 
Hewson himself reckoned that she'd stay out of sight until the seven years was nearly up and then put in an appearance again just to be bloody-minded. The marriage was pretty well on the rocks when she left home, but she seems to have made up her mind not to let him go without a struggle. You're sure there were no signs of foul play? Quite sure, sir. She'd taken all her clothes and jewellery and her passport. There were a couple of suitcases missing, and she'd cleared out their joint banking account. A car turned up a few weeks later. It had been abandoned in a long-stay car park at Gatwick Airport, but there were no clues in it as to where she'd gone. Dover ran a stubby finger round inside his shirt collar. Struce, it was hot. He hoped what's-his-name wasn't going to be all bloody day with that cup of tea. Was there another man? Hewson thought there might be, sir, but he didn't know. Uh, she was on her own quite a bit while he was off working in the city. What about her friends? Dover might not have been the world's most brilliant detective, but in his long years in the police, even he'd managed to pick up a few bits of technique. Did she mention to any of them she was thinking of running away? Inspector Threlfall shook his head. As far as I can remember, sir, she didn't have any friends, at least not round here. Relations? Dover had been thrashing about in his chair like a stranded porpoise. Inspector Threlfall watched these antics nervously. Was Fatty having some kind of heat stroke, or was he merely trying to hoist himself to his feet? Uh, only a sister in Ireland, sir, and they hadn't spoken for years. With a final wheeze, Dover managed to stand up. Too hot to move, it may have been, but when nature calls, even the least fastidious of us is obliged to go. Especially if we have bladders as weak as Dover's. Bloody foreign muck, he grumbled. It goes straight through you. I don't know why people can't give you proper English beer. He turned to McGregor, who was trying to pretend that none of this had anything to do with him. Where is it, laddie? Long association with Dover had taught McGregor to give a high priority on every occasion to locating where it was. I believe there's a cloakroom at the foot of the stairs, sir. Dover departed at an urgent trot, leaving a thoughtful silence behind him on the veranda. Inspector Threlfall loosened his tie. He's a bit of a lad, eh? he said at last. McGregor responded with a thin, humourless smile and changed the subject. Have you any ideas about who killed Garlic, sir? Some, said Inspector Threlfall, seeing no particular reason to be helpful. Left alone, he reckoned he would have solved this case in a couple of hours flat. One of his fellow yobbos, sir? Could be. Friday's usually payday, observed McGregor carefully. Garlic was a bit of a drinker, I think you said. He liked his pint. McGregor closed his notebook to show that this was an off-the-record conversation. You often get drunken rows blowing up on a Friday night. Maybe this one didn't get settled until Saturday morning. I mean, who else, except his mates, would have known he'd be working out here this morning? Apart from Mrs. Houston, that is. He'd have hardly spread the news around, would he? And it would only be a local chap who'd know there was an easy access to that old orchard from the road. Inspector Threlfall contented himself with raising his eyebrows in an enigmatic sort of way. If that was how the clever dicks from the yard saw it, good luck to him. Inspector Threlfall wasn't going to stick his neck out just to show them where they'd gone wrong. It seemed a very long time before Dover came waddling back. McGregor tried to get him to continue on down to the scene of the crime while he was still on his feet, but Dover brushed his sergeant's efforts to one side and flopped back into his chair. Oh, I've just been out round the back, he announced. 
MacGregor's heart sank. Oh, it was all so mortifying. But, sir, he wailed, I told you exactly where the cloakroom was. Dover flapped an impatient hand. Not that, you fool, he growled. I went there first. It was after, when I went round the back of the house to have a look. Bloody good thing I did too. Do you know what? You can't see the kitchen from the garage, and you can't see the garage from the kitchen. Sir? That means he did it, laddie, explained Dover helpfully. He nodded cheerfully at Inspector Threlfall. All we need now is a bulldozer and a warrant. I beg your pardon, sir. Dover's good humour began to evaporate. If there was one thing that really got to him, it was stupidity, especially on a blooming hot day like this. You've got cloth ears or something? He asked Inspector Threlfall savagely. I solved your murder for you. Struve, some people want it with bloody jam on. Inspector Threlfall very sensibly clung on to the one bit of this he could understand. You've solved the case, sir. It come to me out there, said Dover, not without a touch of pride. I wasn't just twiddling my thumbs, you know. Then I went round the back, and Bob's your uncle. All fits. All you've got to do is dig up the evidence and charge him with murder. But charge a... Uh, who, sir? Well, what's his name, you bloody fool? roared Dover. Who else, for God's sake? Look, this morning he waits until his wife, or whatever she is, is safely sharp in the kitchen, right? Then he nips out of the garage, round the other side of the house, get it? And down across the bloody garden. The gesticulations which accompanied this vivid account were a little uncertain, as Dover had not actually seen the terrain he was describing. He sneaks into this orchard place, finds young who's your father, picks up the nearest blunt instrument and knocks him out. OK? After that, all he has to do is finish the job off with the pitchfork. Easy as shelling peas. Rightly deducing that nothing useful was going to emerge from Inspector Threlfall's feebly gaping mouth, MacGregor himself tried to introduce a note of sanity into the proceedings. Are you saying that Mr Hewson murdered Garlic, sir? But, but why should he? He didn't even know Garlic. In fact... MacGregor riffled officiously through his notebook. He claims that he'd never even seen Garlic until after he was dead. That's a very definite statement, sir, and easy enough to check. Dover scowled. Trust MacGregor to start nitpicking. He didn't have to know Garlic, he said sullenly. He'd have croaked anybody. You mean Mr. Houston is some sort of homicidal maniac, sir? Dover's scowl blackened. If it hadn't been for the excessively hot weather and MacGregor being such a big strapping chap, Dover might have been sorely tempted to go across and belt him one, insolent young pup. Hewson, he snarled through gritted dentures, would have killed anybody who started digging that old orchard. The penny dropped, and MacGregor could have kicked himself. You mean... I mean, that's where he buried his first blooming wife, snapped Dover, making sure that MacGregor didn't steal his thunder this time. She didn't run away, he killed her, and then buried her with all her clothes and jewellery and stuff out there in the orchard. Inspector Threlfall recovered his powers of speech. But I investigated the first Mrs Hewson's disappearance, sir, and there were no suspicious circumstances. Struth, sneered Dover happily. You wouldn't know a suspicious circumstance if he jumped up and bit you. Hewson was just too clever for you, that's all. Well, it's true the marriage wasn't a very happy one, said Inspector Threlfall, meekly accepting the slur on his professional competence, but we took that as a motive for leaving him. 
He glanced across at MacGregor for support. I suppose we could have Houston in again and ask him a few questions. Dover reacted to this suggestion with unusual passion. Not yet, you bloody don't, he spluttered indignantly. I'm still waiting for that cup of tea, you promised me. This must have sounded a bit thin even to Dover's ears. Besides, he added, in an attempt to place his policy of inaction beyond all question, I've been invited to lunch. Look, why don't you two just push off and get that orchard dug up? It'll probably take you two or three hours. Soon as you find a wife's dead body, you can come and tell me. But not before two o'clock at the earliest, mind. Then we can confront what's-his-name with the facts and get a confession out of him. There's nothing to worry about. He's not the stuff heroes are made of. He'll soon cooperate if we shove him round a bit. And now, the Dover eyelids drooped slowly over the Dover eyes. Why don't you just bug off and leave me to have a quiet think? So that was Sweating It Out with Dover by Joyce Porter. So let me tell you something about Joyce Porter. Joyce Porter was a British mystery author known for her witty and engaging crime novels. Born on February 17th, 1924, Marlowe, Buckinghamshire. I have some connections with Marlowe, it's tenuous ones. My stepfather was apprenticed there, and later my first wife was from near there, uh, born end in fact, and so we used to go to Marlowe, and my father-in-law died in Marlowe. Uh, so there we are, it's just as that's of any interest to anyone. Uh, Porter's literary career, I'm guessing it isn't actually, Porter's literary career primarily spanned from the 1960s to the 70s. She attended Queen Anne's School in Caversham and later studied modern languages at Somerville Court, Oxford. Porter gained recognition for her series of novels featuring the character Inspector Dover. The first book in the series, Dover One, was published in 1964 and introduced readers to the unconventional and often bumbling, to say the least, Inspector Wilfred Dover. Despite his apparent lack of detective skills, Dover manages to solve crimes through his persistence and sheer luck, often with a dose of humour. Throughout the series, Porter's writing style combined elements of traditional mystery with sharp wit and satire. Her characters were colourful and eccentric, and her plots were filled with unexpected, unexpected twists and turns. Uh, the Inspector Dover series gained a dedicated following and established Porter as a respected author in the crime fiction genre. In addition to her Inspector Dover series, Porter wrote several standalone novels and short stories. Her works were praised for their clever plotting, memorable characters and clever dialogue. Joyce Porter passed away on November 9th, 1990, leaving behind a legacy of entertaining and engaging mysteries that continue to captivate readers. I hope it did. Her contributions to the genre remained beloved by fans of British crime fiction. So let's think about that story in the context of the other um, detective stories we have. We've already talked about the American hardboiled being out to one side. And um, we have the tradition from uh, Edgar Allan Poe's remark straight through Sherlock Holmes and many, many others, whereby uh, some of whom we've done on the channel, um, whereby we have a, a very clever detective and uh, the mystery is insoluble to us because we simply don't, this is the early ones, we don't get enough details and then they give an exposition at the end 
um, how they explain it to all the stupid people. And that is the, that is the format. And um, as it evolved, the story, it became that they did drop red herrings, no, they dropped clues and red herrings into the story so that the listener stroke, reader stroke, watcher, uh, viewer of the detective story could themselves begin to work out who did the killing and that became the great hook that was the that is the great thing about modern detective stories that you know people pride themselves i spotted that i knew that <clears throat> you know and that is where they are now but that wasn't the case in the early ones look at sherlock holmes and and some of the other stuff you, you simply as a reader couldn't have worked it out you had to wait for the great man to give um and i guess as time went on this model of mystery and revelation at the end by the very smart detective you know people started to play around with it and wanted to have it a little bit different so what we have and so as i say one of the things was the big development is putting clues in that you could now i think that um and red herrings become important as well so misdirection so misdirection here is the in my opinion is the pretty miss hewson right and she shows her legs for delectation i think the phrase is and so we are led to believe and she's half his age we are led to believe the red herring is that somehow she was having an affair with this garlic bloke who we also told was a bit of a ladies man those are total red herrings they are meant to misdirect us uh, so we think aha that's what was going on the husband we okay he killed either we think she's got a crush on him and uh, he's been off with somebody else so she's killed him or her husband has found out and killed him and those those are those trains of thought are caused by the deliberate red herrings that joyce porter put in the story to misdirect us but at the same time she is laying the foundation for but the true we couldn't have guessed it was the first wife because that doesn't come in until two-thirds of the way through the story. So to the first two-thirds of the story, there's no way we could guess who'd done it. Not at all. There wasn't a single pertinent clue. And then we get this, the um, kind of flat-footed uh, Inspector Threlfall spills the beans. He's telling us about garlic. And then he talks about Houston. Oh, well, they're not married, you know. And oh, yeah, okay. And the first wife disappeared. And then immediately, I think most of us go, aha. And then some of the brightest of us will will then connect the um, the fact of the rotivator and the digging up and the fact he didn't want he didn't want he wanted it left alone as a nature reserve and those those are clues but they only become clues in the light of what we learn at this point two thirds of the way in they're not really clues so basically the information we get about the wife disappearing serves as a, a light switch and then that illuminates this pre these previous if we remember well enough and some of you will have um that illuminates the clues that were in the dark before we probably couldn't have known about them before and then doom, this information lights up those clues so we've got the misdirection the red herrings we've been sent in one direction and then boom we get this information that the nature reserve he didn't want it dug up lit up boom those are the clues and there, from that point, we can work it out. And I would say in the early detective stories that they didn't do that, so that we couldn't have worked it out. So this is a kind of this is this story came out in 1964, and uh, that is, is an evolution to the modern detective or the you know the later detective story. The other thing we want to say is, of course, 
We have the clever detective and his pal, his foil. And we have Sherlock and Watson, of course. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And then we have um, a whole bunch of them coming forward. It particularly made me think of Inspector Morse and Lewis and Colin Dexter. So Colin Dexter started writing his uh, Morse stories. I think the first one came out in 1974. So um, I, I did actually check that. So, uh, sorry for the pause. I've lost it now. I think it was 74. And then they, they produced. So it is a, a decade after this. And you can see, but we still got the idea of the irascible, um, eccentric, but brilliant detective. I'm not saying Dover is brilliant, but he is brilliant in an idiot savant sort of way. I mean, he is. He's actually much cleverer than, than, than he must be much cleverer than he's given credit for. He, he, so... So that's that, the partner of the straight man and the, and the eccentric genius detective that we see in other, in later, but, you know, it's in the air. And then the other kind of detective that you are reminded of is, of course, Columbo. And Columbo's coming out in 1971, I think um, the pilot was, 1971. And he is the dumb detective, Columbo, who isn't really dumb. And this strikes me, this is Dover as well. Dover is supposedly everything. So that, again, it's a misdirection. It's red, red herrings. Um, you know, he doesn't get up. He just wants a beer. He's belly, be he belches his belly. He's, he's kind of a rough, rough. I don't even know if he's a diamond. He's rough anyway. And this is meant to, and um, this of course touches on the ancient, the ancient classical thought, the beauty and goodness were the same thing and we assume all virtues clustered together so the beautiful are also the good are also the brilliantly intelligent as well and our um, uh, experience of life tells us that all those things are separable uh, that you can have beautiful people who are thick and wicked you can have wicked people who are clever and beautiful and you know you can have clever people who are ugly and um, what was the other one um, <clears throat> whatever the other one was so, but, but of course, we still can't have this naive thing, you know, if, if you're stupid and, and he's painted in a very sweaty, un, um, overweight, sweaty, greedy, gluttonous, common, um, I played him like that, I must admit, um, character. So yeah, he's a kind of proto-Columbo as well. So we can see, well, the interesting thing is this story, uh, you can see the evolution of the detective story, you can see all the various um, threads that come out in it and um, will later develop and echoes in other detectives. I wanted to say, I thought that she is very funny, uh, Joyce Porter. There was a lot of that was actually really funny. Um, yeah, and somebody's murdered, and yet there's comedy in it. And that is like like the cosy mystery. The cosy mystery is actually cosy, isn't it? And a lot of, um, if you think of a lot of the British TV detectives, Moss, and Inspector Lindley, and we're going around these beautiful places, and that, and we we stop for a pint in country pubs, and you know that's all very cosy, and it's never really horrific. And then, of course, we get there's a whole other later genre of quite brutal, disgusting crime stories, but this is not it. This is a cosy. This is amusing. It's pleasant. Uh, you know, uh, somebody's dead with a pitchfork. A young man is dead. An innocent young man, as it turns out, or, you know, he's a petty criminal, but he didn't deserve, he hadn't done anything to um, deserve getting a pitchfork on his back. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have done that, would you? You would have basically gone to him and said, um, look, uh, here's 
here's 50 quid. Just go away and don't come back in. I won't tell anybody. And that would have been the the less problematic, but it wouldn't have got us a story, would it? Anyway, so a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Thank <laughs> you.